Section 17 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 17. A Rifled Desk. Events moved swiftly in the week that followed. Particulars of the accident to General Field, however, were slow in reaching Fort Frayne, and to the feverish unrest and mental trouble of the son was now added a feverish anxiety on the father's account that so complicated the situation as to give dr waller grave cause for alarm then it was that ignoring every possible thought of misbehaviour on the part of the young officer toward the gentle girl so dear to them not only mrs blake and mrs ray but mrs dade herself insisted on being made of use insisted on being permitted to go to his bedside and there to minister as only women can to the suffering and distressed Waller thought it over and succumbed. The lad was no longer delirious, at least, and if he revealed anything of what was uppermost in his mind, it would be a conscious and voluntary revelation. There were some things he had said, and that Waller alone had heard, the good old doctor wished were known to certain others of the garrison, and to no one more than Mrs. Dade, and so the prohibition against their visiting the wounded lad was withdrawn, and not only these, but other women, sympathetically attracted, were given the necessary authority. There was other reason for this— from the commanding officer of the supply camp at Rock Springs had come, finally, a letter that was full of foreboding. General Field, it said, was sorely injured and might not survive. If the department commander had only been at Omaha or Cheyenne, as the anxious father hastened to reach his son, the mishap would never have occurred. The general would gladly have seen to it that suitable transportation from the railway to Frayne was afforded his old-time comrade but in his absence field shrank from appealing to any one else and through the train conductor wired ahead to rock creek for a stout four-mule team and wagon with a capable driver the conductor assured him that such things were to be had for money and that everything would be in readiness on his arrival team wagon and driver certainly were on hand but the team looked rickety so did the wagon so did the driver who had obviously been priming for the occasion it was this rig or nothing, however, and in spite of a courteous remonstrance from the two officers at the supply camp, who saw and condemned the outfit, General Field started on time and returned on an improvised trestle three hours later. The outfit had been tumbled over a ledge into a rocky creek bottom, and with disastrous results to all concerned, except the one who deserved it most, the driver. The ways of Providence are indeed inscrutable." A surgeon had been sent from Fort Russell, and his report was such that Waller would not let it go in full to his patient. They had carried the old soldier back to camp, and such aid as could be given by the rude hands of untaught men was all he had for nearly twenty-four hours, and his suffering had been great. Internal injuries, it was feared, had been sustained, and at his advanced age that was something almost fatal. No wonder Waller was worried." Then Flint took alarm at other troubles closer at hand. Up to this year he had been mercifully spared all personal contact with our Indian wards, and when he was told by his sentries that twice in succession night riders had been heard on the westward bench, and pony tracks in abundance had been found at the upper ford, the site of Stabber's village, and that others still were to be seen in the soft ground not far from Hayes Coral, the Major was more than startled. At this stage of the proceedings, Sergeant Crabb of the cavalry was the most experienced Indian fighter left at the post. Crabb was sent for, and unflinchingly gave his views. The Sioux had probably scattered before the squadron sent after them from the north, had fled into the hills, and, in small bands probably, were now raiding down toward the Platte, well knowing there were few soldiers left to defend Fort Frayne, and no cavalry were there to chase them. "'What brings them here? What do they hope to get or gain?' asked Flint. "'I don't know, sir,' answered Crabb. "'But this I do know. They are after something and expect to get it.' 
"'If I might make so bold, sir, I think the Major ought to keep an eye on them blasted half-breeds at Hayes.' It set Flint to serious thinking. Pete and Crapow, paid henchmen of the trader, had been taking advantage of their employer's absence and celebrating after the manner of their kind. One of his officers, new like himself to the neighbourhood and to the Indians, had had encounter with the two that rubbed his commissioned fur the wrong way. A sentry, in discharge of his duty, had warned them one evening away from the rear gate of a bachelor den, along officer's row, and had been told to go to Sheol, or words to that effect. They had more business there than he had, said they, and under the potent sway of inspiring bold John Barleycorn, had not even abated their position when the officer of the day happened along. They virtually damned and defied him, too. The officer of the day reported to the commanding officer, and that officer called on Mrs. Hay to tell her he should order the culprits off the reservation if they were not better behaved. Mrs. Hay, so said the servant, was feeling far from well, and had to ask to be excused, when who should appear but that ministering angel Mrs. Dade herself, and Mrs. Dade undertook to tell Mrs. Hay of the misconduct of the men, even when assuring Major Flint she feared it was a matter in which Mrs. Hay was powerless. They were afraid of Hay, but not of her. Hearing of Mrs. Hay's illness, Mrs. Dade and other women had come to visit and console her, but there were very few whom she would now consent to see. Even though confident no bodily harm would befall her husband or her niece, Mrs. Hay was evidently sore disturbed about something. Failing to see her, Major Flint sent for the bartender and clerk, and bade them say where these truculent semi-savage bacchanals got their whisky, and both men promptly and confidently declared it wasn't at the store. Neither of them would give or sell to either half-breed a drop, and old Wilkins stood sponsor for the integrity of the affiants, both of whom he had known for years, and both of whom intimated that the two specimens had no need to be begging, buying, or stealing whisky, when Bill Hay's private cellar held more than enough to fill the whole Sioux nation. Moreover, said Pink Marble, they've got the run of the stables now the old man's away, and there isn't a night some of those horses ain't out. When Flint said that was something Mrs. Hay ought to know, Pink Marble replied that was something Mrs. Hay did know, unless she refused to believe the evidence of her own senses as well as his, and Pink thought it high time our fellows in the field had recaptured Hay and fetched him home. If it wasn't done mighty soon, he, Pink, wouldn't be answerable for what might happen at the post. All the more anxious did this make Flint. He decided that the exigencies of the case warranted his putting a sentry over Hay's stable, with orders to permit no horse to be taken out except by an order from him, and Crabbe took him and showed him, two days later, the tracks of two horses going and coming in the soft earth in front of a narrow side-door that led to the coral. Flint had this door padlocked at once, and Wilkins took the key, and that night was surprised by a note from Mrs. Hay. The stablemen complain that the sentries will not let them take the horses out even for water and exercise, which has never been the case before, and Mrs. Hay begged that the restriction might be removed. Indeed, if Major Flint would remove the sentry, she would assume all responsibility for loss or damage. The men had been with Mr. Hay, she said, for six years, and never had been interfered with before, and they were sensitive and hurt and would quit work, they said, if further molested. Then there would be nobody to take their place, and the stock would suffer." In point of fact, Mrs. Hay was pleading for the very men against whom the other employees claimed to have warned her, these two half-breeds who had defied his sentries, and Flint's anxieties materially increased. It taxed all his stock of personal piety, and strengthened the belief he was beginning to harbour that Mrs. Hay had some use for the horses at night, some sojourners in the neighbourhood with whom she must communicate, and who could they be but Sue? Then Mistress McGann, sound sleeper that she used to be, declared to the temporary post commander, as he was, and temporary lodger, as she considered him, that things was going on about the post she'd never heard the likes of before, and that the major would never put up with a minute. When Mrs. McGann said the major, she meant not Flint, but his predecessor. 
There was but one major in her world, the one she treated like a minor. Being a soldier's wife, however, she knew the deference due to the commanding officer, even though she did not choose to show it, and when bidden to say her say and tell what things was going on, Mistress McGann asseverated, with the asperity of a woman who has had to put her husband to bed two nights running, that the time had never been before that he was so drunk he didn't know his way home, and so got into the back of the bachelor quarters instead of his own. "'And to think of his being propped up at his own gate by a lousy frog-eating half-Frenchman half-savage!' Yet when investigated, this proved to be the case, and the further question arose, where did McGann get his whisky? A faithful, loyal, devoted old servitor was McGann, yet Webb, as we have seen, had ever to watch his whisky carefully, lest the Irishman should see it, and seeing taste, and tasting fall. The store had orders from Mrs. McGann, countersigned by Webb, to the effect that her husband was never to have a drop. Flint was a teetotaler himself, and noted without a shadow of disapprobation that the decanters on the sideboard were both empty the very day he took possession, also that the cupboard was securely locked. Mrs. McGann was sure her liege got no liquor there nor at the store, and his confused statement that it was given him by fellers at the stables was treated with scorn. McGann then was still under marital surveillance and official displeasure the day after Mrs. McGann's revelations, with unexplained iniquities to answer for when his head cleared and his legs resumed their functions. But by that time other matters were brought to light that laid still further accusation at his door. With the consent of Dr. Waller, Lieutenant Field had been allowed to send an attendant for his desk. There were letters, he said, he greatly wished to see an answer, and Mrs. Ray had been so kind as to offer to act as his amanuensis. The attendant went with the key and came back with a scared face. Somebody, he said, had been there before him. They did not tell Field this at the time. The doctor went at once with the messenger, and in five minutes had taken in the situation. Field's rooms had been entered and probably robbed. There was only one other occupant of the desolate set that so recently had rung to the music of so many glad young voices. Of the garrison proper at Frayne, all the cavalry officers except Wilkins were away at the front. All the infantry officers, five in number, were also up along the bighorn. The four who had come with Flint were strangers to the post, but Heron, who had been a classmate of Ross at the point, moved into his room and took the responsibility of introducing the contract doctor, who came with them, into the quarters at the front of the house on the second floor. These rooms had been left open and unlocked. There was nothing, said the lawful occupant, worth stealing, which was probably true, but Field had bolted inside the door of his sleeping-room, locked the hall door of his living-room, and taken the key with him when he rode with Ray. The doctor looked over the rooms a moment, then sent for Wilkins, the post-quartermaster, who came in a huff at being disturbed at lunch. Field had been rather particular about his belongings. His uniforms always hung on certain pegs in the plain wooden wardrobe. The drawers of his bureau were generally arranged like the clothes-press of cadet days, as though for inspection. But now coats, blouses, dressing-sack, and smoking-jacket hung with pockets turned inside out or flung about the bed and floor. Trousers had been treated with like contempt. The bureau looked like what sailors used to call a hurrah's nest, and a writing-desk, brass-bound and of solid make, that stood on a table by a front window, had been forcibly wrenched open, and its contents were tossed about the floor. A larger desk, a wooden field-desk, stood upon a trestle across the room, and this too had been ransacked. Just what was missing only one man could tell, just how they entered was patent to all, through a glazed window between the bedroom and the now unused dining-room beyond. Just who were the housebreakers no man present could say, but Mistress McGann that afternoon communicated her suspicion to her sore-headed spouse, and did it boldly and with the aid of a broomstick. "'It's all along,' she said. "'Ave your stoopin' to drink with them low-lived savages at Hayes. Now what do you know about this?' 
but McGann swore piously he knew nothing, barring that Pete and Crapow had some good liquor one night, dear knows when it was, and I helped em drink your health, and when twas gone and more was wanted, sure Pete said he'd take a demijohn to the lieutenant's, with Mr. Hay's compliments, the day before he left for the front, and sure he couldn't have drunk all of it, and if the back door was open, Pete would inquire anyhow. That was all Michael remembered, or felt warranted in revealing, for stoutly he declared his and their innocence of having burglariously entered any premises, let alone the lieutenant's. "'Sure they'd bite their own noses off for him,' said Mike, which impossible feat attested the full measure of half-breed devotion. Mistress McGann decided to make further investigation before saying anything to anybody, but before the dawn of another day matters took such shape that fear of sorrowful consequences, involving even Michael, set a ban on her impulse to speak.' Field, it seems, had been at last induced to sleep some hours that evening, and it was nearly twelve when he awoke and saw his desk on a table near the window. The attendant was nodding in an easy chair, and just as the young officer determined to rouse him, Mrs. Dade, with the doctor, appeared on tiptoe at the doorway. For a few minutes they kept him interested in letters and reports concerning his father's condition, the gravity of which, however, was still withheld from him. Then there were reports from Tongue River, brought in by courier, that had to be told him but after a while he would be no longer denied. He demanded to see his desk and his letters. At a sign from the doctor, the attendant raised it from the table and bore it to the bed. "'I found things in some confusion in your quarters, Field,' said Waller, by way of preparation, "'and I probably haven't arranged the letters as you would if you had had time. They were lying about loosely.' But he got no further. Field had started up and was leaning on one elbow. The other arm was outstretched. "'What do you mean?' he cried. "'The desk hasn't been opened.' Too evidently, however, it had been, and in an instant Field had pulled a brass pin that held in place a little drawer. It popped part way out, and with trembling hands he drew it forth, empty. Before he could speak, Mrs. Dade suddenly held up her hand in signal for silence, her face paling at the instant. There was a rush of slippered feet through the corridor, a hum of excited voices, and both Dr. Waller and the attendant darted for the door. Outside, in the faint starlight, sound of commotion came from the direction of the guardhouse, of swift footfalls from far across the parade, of the vitreous jar of windows hastily raised. Two or three lights popped suddenly into view along the dark line of officers' quarters, and Waller's voice, with a ring of authority unusual to him, halted a running corporal of the guard. "'What is it?' demanded he. "'I don't know, sir,' was the soldier's answer. "'There was an awful scream from the end quarters. Captain Ray, sir.' Then on he went again. And then came the crack-crack of a pistol. End of chapter 17